The uh, talk is Living on an Island, an Approach to Geopoetics. And uh, I want to start with a quotation. In a general way, it's the Atlantic that governs our territory, creating the weather, shaping the coasts, wavelengthing minds. That's Kenneth White in the opening lines of House of Tides, talking about Brittany or Armorica, where he lives. But it could just as well be about the west of Scotland, where I live. And when I told a friend the title of my talk recently, he reminded me that when he was the secretary of the community council, uh, he once got a letter addressed to him on the Isle of Living instead of the Isle of Ling. Um, And he and I thought that was entirely appropriate at the time, because living is what it's all about, and what geopoetics is all about, uh, grounded living. Now, geopoetics starts from a fundamental critique of the basis of Western thought over the last 2,500 years. A critique of the separation of mind and body, and of human beings from the earth, and it's out to open up a new space. This first part of the talk I'm going to talk in in general terms and then I'm going to come to the specifics of living on an island. Geopoetics sees the body-mind as one, the world and humanity as an integral whole, and the poetics of the earth as of central importance in unifying the separate domains of knowledge. In this, it challenges the whole direction of the Western philosophical tradition from Plato and Aristotle onwards, which was expanded worldwide by Christianity into everyday consciousness and nurtured by modern society which depends on these separations for the continuation of its structures. In this sense, geopoetics is outside the motorway of Western thinking. Its origins are in the writings of Kenneth White, who developed the concept of geopoetics as a result of his studies of Western thinking and culture, and also of Hyperborean cultures, including Native American, Inuit and Siberian shamanism, as well as of Taoist, Hindu and Zen Buddhist theory and practice. His essay books, most of which remain unpublished in English, contain the fullest expression of geopoetics, and of course he has given many lectures on this subject in Scotland over the last 13 years or so. His prose books and poetry exemplify what geopoetics is in practice, and by founding the International Institute of Geopoetics in 1989, he provided the impetus for the development of geopoetics as an international movement. The other person who has done most to develop and promulgate geopoetics in Scotland is Tony McManus who wrote numerous articles, particularly on Scottish music, geopoetics and the work of Kenneth White, which were published in magazines, journals and the press. He gave many lectures on geopoetics, especially here in Edinburgh, and founded and led the Scottish Centre for Geopoetics from 1995 until his death last year. We all owe Tony a great deal for all that he did, and he has mapped out for us in his life and work, how we might take geopoetics forward in Scotland. He saw the Scottish Centre for Geopoetics as very much part of the International Institute of Geopoetics. He corresponded with others in France, Belgium, 
and elsewhere, and he took part in some of the Institute's international conferences. Following on from Kenneth White and with a deep understanding of his writings, Tony was very particular about what geopoetics is and what it isn't. Geopoetics isn't all things to all men and women. It's much more than deep ecology or nature poetry or an abstract system of thought, although these may be part of it. If we want to understand and practice geopoetics, we have to work on ourselves, be critical of the preconceptions with which we have been brought up and continue to be subjected to and approach it as a way of being in the world as well as a theory about the world. This involves a certain amount of deconditioning of ourselves. Geopoetics also involves study. The background to geopoetics lies in Kenneth White's poetry and prose. The theory, as with all grounded theory, arises out of the practice. To see into that practice, there are the collected longer poems, The Bird Path, the collected shorter poems, Handbook for the Diamond Country, and prose books such as The Blue Road, Pilgrim of the Void, and House of Tides. And his complete poems will be out this summer. On the theoretical side, you could begin, for example, with the remapping of Scotland. Kenneth White's talk at the Edinburgh International Book Festival in 2001, which has been reprinted and is available at the back. Um, Also, you could start with some of the interviews with him in Coast to Coast, in which he talks about geopoetics, and move on to On Scottish Ground. For example, the chapters The Alban Project, Into the White World, and Scotland, Intelligence and Culture. Unfortunately, On Scottish Ground needs to be reprinted, and we'll have to wait a while for the translation of his his 350-page Le Plateau de l'Albatros, which lays out geopoetics from a poetic, philosophical and scientific point of view. Now, there are lots of references to other writers and thinkers in White's work, a study of whom would assist the development of our understanding of geopoetics. In philosophy, there's Duns Scotus, Nietzsche, Husserl and Heidegger. In poetry, there's Hans Shan, Matsuo Basho, Whitman... Rilke, and so on. These are some of his intellectual nomads who travelled off the motorway of Western civilization, or in the case of Han Shan and Matsuo Basho, were never on it, and took more interesting and fruitful highways and byways in their writings and lives. This is what Tony McManus did. He studied Kenneth White's work in depth, including the essay books in French, and followed up many of these references. With the best of intentions, some of Tony's many friends have suggested that it's a pity that he didn't spend more time writing his own poems and songs rather than undertaking so much of this theoretical work. But I believe with Tony that this is a misreading of the significance of the choices he made in the work that he did. He was convinced of the fundamental importance of geopoetics as a concept and practice for living one's life and believed that to produce work of real significance today requires a grounding in geopoetics and its application to the way we perceive and live in the world and respond creatively to it. 
Tony did write many outstanding poems and songs and translate those of others and his grasp of geopoetics as a way of being in the earth shines through in his observations from a new territory, his deep meditation on life and death. His poems and the songs he wrote and translated and the music he made and arranged, such as his musical arrangements of some of the poems of George Campbell Hay in collaboration with others in the George Campbell Hay project, were informed by and imbued with his theoretical work on geopoetics. For Tony, the study of geopoetics and creative work weren't mutually exclusive alternatives. The two were and are inseparable, each enriching the other. He believed passionately that geopoetics opens the way to creativity for everyone. As an approach to living in the world, it can overcome the many social and cultural barriers put in our way and create the possibility of expressing the world as it really is. That is why he spent so much time studying geopoetics, writing about it, organising conferences and exhibitions and giving lectures to spread the word about its significance to as many people as possible. I believe that the significance of Tony's theoretical work on geopoetics, the trail that he blazed in Scotland, will become more apparent when the SEC wrote on geopoetics and the work of Kenneth White and on Scottish music, which came out in various magazines and newspapers, are brought together and published in books. In my view, he was right to devote so much time, so much of his time and energy to this work, and it's vital that we continue that work. One way of continuing that work is to proceed and to take something very specific that we know and love, to study it, look at it from all angles, read as much as we can find out about it, but above all, be open to it and respond to it in the most creative way we know how. In the rest of this talk, I want to give you some idea of what I've started to do along these lines. In doing so, I hope to show how geopoetics can unify some aspects of geology, meteorology, geography, history and visual art by means of a, of a radically grounded poetics and can inform and enrich living on an island. Growing up in Glasgow, as I did, you don't think of yourself as living on an island. The city seemed far too solid for that. All cobbles and chimneys, factories and fog. And the sea was something you only saw when you went your summer holidays, mostly to the noon in Argyll in my case. But of course, when you think about it, we all live in islands, surrounded by the sea. It's just that some are much bigger than others, and the land seems limitless, so we don't always realise it. I'm sure we all remember the delight we took in writing out our address when we were wee. 25 Kennaway Drive, Partick, Glasgow, Scotland, Britain, Europe, the world, the universe. A kind of nascent childhood cosmopoetics. Britain sits off the northwest coast of Europe, which itself is a promontory of Asia, which is surrounded by oceans on a planet in a sea of infinite space. But living as most of us do in an urban environment, we often forget this. 
But in Glasgow in those days, the one tangible reminder of the sea was the sound of ships' horns going up and down the Clyde, through the damp smog, usually. And at New Year, a cacophony of blasts, rather than the bells, sounded by ships from around the world. As a child, I, I liked nothing better than to sit by a rock pool and watch all kinds of marine life going on in there and feel the texture of rocks and seaweed underwater. Or to go out in a rowing boat, ship the oars and listen to the water chortling under varnished wood. Many years later, something drew me to the sea and to places where the land meets the sea. So starting about eight years ago, I went on journeys to the inner and outer Hebrides of Scotland and now much of our northwest coastline. I wanted to experience those islands, walk their shores, and deeper still, I was look looking for somewhere to live life more fully. My journeys began in Argyll, taking in Isla, Gia and Mull, continued on via Ardnamurkin and Moidert to Skye, Rassay, the Ewes, Lewis and Harris, down the northwest coast by way of Applecross, Gearloch, Ascent, Handa Island, Cape Wrath, Durness, Sutherland, never going to get there at this rate, and finally back down to Argyll, to the Isle of Ling, where I now have a cottage in Cullipool, right on the west coast. Now you might care to have a look at the, the map that's in front of you, which is, shows you the location of, um, of Cullipool and of the Isle of Ling. The first map on the left-hand side there shows you the Isle of Ling in its relation to the other islands in the vicinity. The cottage that I have in Cullipool on the west coast of Ling looks out to Scarba and Lunga to the south, and you can see those in the left-hand corner of the map, and faces beyond Flada, which has a lighthouse on it, Belnahua, the Gavalus, which are beyond Belnahua, um, and over beyond the long coast of Mull, which stretches to the west of Ling, out to the Atlantic Ocean. And it was that view and its palpable energy of wind and sea which me, took me to that particular place. Good Feng Shui, wind and water, as my Chinese herbal doctor said when I described where it was. And this short poem is about that. It's called Earth, Sea and Sky. Island cottage on the rim of the world, in that space between earth, sea and sky, where air and sea currents a plays of wild energy and the light changes everything. And what I've begun to do in Ling is to try to get inside the place, to begin to try to understand its land formations from its geology and how the sea has changed it and continues to change it, bringing people there who have mainly lived off the sea and the land and who in turn have changed and continue, continue to change the landscape and the sea. Ling is almost entirely made up of slate, formed from sediments of mudstones, clay and shale about 500 million years ago in the Dalryadan period. And outcrops of it are found in a belt running along the Great Glen Fault 
from northeast in the Banff area near Keith and Huntley to southwest, including Balahulish and the Slate Islands, of which Ling is one of the Slate Islands. On the surface of Easdale Slate, as it is known, you often find pyrites of iron sulphide or fool's gold. And on the western shore of Ling, you can see great folds in the slate, as well as basalt dikes, which came much later from lava flows from volcanic activity on Mull <coughs> around 50 million years ago. These basalt dikes form promontories along the shores of Ling and Mull, where the sea has eroded the softer slate around them and travelled southeast as far as Yorkshire and maybe as far as Sweden. Close by the basalt, you also find veins of white quartzite caused by the melting and recrystallising of minerals by the molten magma. Some examples of these different kinds of rocks and features are shown in the photographs that hopefully you've had a chance to have a look at. The slate on these islands um, has been taken since at least the 17th century and the now abandoned quarries reveal intricate seams and formations in the Earth's crust. The sea is claiming back some of the land created by the quarriers and has smoothed and polished whole shores of discarded slates. Some of these photographs also show how the sea has created vertical patterns of of slates on the shore, almost like mosaics. And when you look at those, I would like you to compare them with the mosaics made by the artist and geologist Dougie McInnes, who works with slate in all its beautiful colours and textures. Um, these are some other couple more um, photographs of the slate work that uh, mosaics that, that Dougie McInnes has made. So when you look at those photographs, you'll, you'll see how the landscape has inspired Dougie McInnes. And in this poem, I've also tried to say something about the beauty of slate. It's called Slate. In this light, slate appears dull, even ugly from a distance when passing a quarry. Raw rock gouged out, stretch marks on a mother's belly. On closer inspection, narrows and whorls, exposed in all their beauty by clumsy scratchings, are soon softened by sea spurge, thrift and marin grass. After rain, great flagstones of slate carved and coaxed into gardens, gleam and shine with all the brightness their release from earth's depths can muster, grey diamonds waiting for this moment to explode into sparkling brilliance of sunlight, black silver polished by relentless tides, glowing and blazing from darkest fathoms. In full sun, slate looks pale grey, that flat sameness on a shore, unless fool's gold winks a pyrite's eye from smooth slab, and a myriad of textures, colours and forms, fashioned by wind and wave, are revealed to those who would open themselves to all its slateness. So with all this slate exposed around you in Cullipool, which is a, a slate quarry village, You're very aware of the earth and how it has changed over vast stretches of time and how it continues to change. The stones on the the beaches, they change with the tides and after storms parts of the path around the cliffs 
disappear. In Killapool Bay, a kind of natural hierarchy of slates is laid out on the shore, with the largest stones stranded furthest up by big storms, bigger pebbles in the middle section, and fine grey sand lowest down, taken hither and thither by the, by the sea's vagaries. You also get a strong feeling there of immense space and clear light, like when you're up a mountain. On the west coast of the island, you're looking right out across the Firth of Lorne, beyond tidal races between the smaller isles to the Atlantic Ocean. You can actually see the Atlantic weather fronts coming over, bringing varied cloud formations, which continually change the colour and shape of the sea. Because Ling is much less mountainous than Mull, the clouds in the mist tend to blow over, allowing you to observe the beauty of misty Mull without suffering the consequences, weather and midge-wise. It's a great place for what John Constable called skying, observing the clouds and how they change with the wind and the humidity. And of course the sea's colours change with the changing colours of the sky. And the weather often changes dramatically within a single day, as well as from day to day, as do the sunsets. Most of our weather fronts are formed out in the mid-Atlantic, and the Gulf Stream and the other currents have profound effects on fishing stocks, their vegetation and climate. Seafarers have had to become skilled at keeping a weather eye open for changes in atmospheric pressure and cloud formations that might bring danger. On the Argyle coast, they've also had to learn to cope with some of the most difficult waters and currents anywhere. The tidal race between Ling and Seal runs at seven knots, and the tides between Scarba and Jura, the sound of Ling and the Atlantic, sometimes give rise to the Corrivrecken, one of the largest whirlpools in the world. From the top of Scarba, you can see the currents of the Corrivrecken flowing miles out into the Atlantic. The Corrivrecken is known as Ankailach, the old hag, who is also the earth goddess, who appears most often as a bird, a crow, a gull, a cormorant or a heron, and the stories about it are legendary. George Orwell and some of his family almost drowned there when his boat capsized, and it's possible that the whirlpool of Charibids, visited by Odysseus or Ulysses, in Homer's Odyssey, was the same Charibidus Bricani, referred to by Adamnan in his biography of Column Keel, written in the 7th century AD. There was a whole television programme, uh, Canadian television, made in 1985 about this particular uh, analysis of the Odyssey uh, by someone called Edward Furlong. And he, to his satisfaction, proved that Corrivrecken was that same um, Odyssean whirlpool. Nowadays, if we think of them at all, we tend to think of the islands of Argyll as fairly remote, on the periphery of west-central Scotland. However, the west coast was one of the first places where hunter-gatherers of the Mesolithic period lived after the last ice age. It's strange to think that Britain and Ireland were part of the continent of Europe until around 6500 BC and only became islands with rises in sea level 
caused by melting ice caps. Although the west of Scotland continues to rise at the rate of 2 millimetres a year. Unlike elsewhere, the land dries outstripped the rise in sea level, so these Mesolithic occupation sites, once on the shoreline, are now several metres above the sea, including some on the islands of Jura and Orensey off Collinsey. There they lived on a wide variety of shellfish and fish, and further north at Rizga, at the mouth of Loch Sunot, seabirds, seals, red deer and wild pigs were hunted, in addition to the gathering of nuts and plants. Living on these islands or at estuaries along the coastline gave those people a greater variety of food sources and meant that they were less dependent on forests or land resources alone. So some of the earliest signs of human activity have been found in caves just outside Oban and that that culture has been named Obanian. The sea was the easiest and most common means of communication so these coastlines and islands were initially at the centre of the development of communities rather than at the periphery, hence the abundance of early archaeological sites there. One theory is that it was fishermen in light hide-covered boats following shoals of fish who brought the various Mesolithic Atlantic cultures into contact with each other, thereby helping to account for the remarkable similarities between them from Orkney to Portugal. These maritime contacts continued over the next 4,000 years, principally for trade in minerals and bronze, and what became known as Celtic or Gallic languages developed as part of that communication. On Ling there are several duns dating from the Iron Age period around 2,500 to 2,000 years ago. Two of them on the third map you'll be able to see are they are one's called Dun Valley Castle and the other one is called Dun Now these are built on the tops of hills within sight of each other and they may have been part of an early warning system of the approach of others as well as symbols of dominance over the surrounding area. In the late 5th century AD the Scotty came from Dalriata in Antrim to settle in Argyll and the islands and they established the kingdom of Dalriada, based at Danad, near the Neolithic site of Kilmartin. They were followed by Celtic monks from Ireland, like Brandon, Colum Keel, and Molloag, and they travelled out and spread Christianity from their centres in Iona and Lismore. However, these Perig- Peregrini came not so much to convert heathens, but like Jesus going into the desert were looking for isolation, concentration and spiritual regeneration. They were travellers, they journeyed great distances by boat and on foot, but they also needed space for contemplation and renewal. Iona and Lismore became centres of learning, but even so, written records are sparse. Some of it you have to fill in with your own imagination, as I've done in this poem about one of the Gavalach Isles, Elach and Eve, um, or Holy Isle, or Isle of the Saints, or as it's more anciently known, Nahin Ban, or Isle of the Sea. It contains two beehive cells, very similar to those in Skerrig Michael and Kerry, where Brandon came from. The remains of the monastery, 
probably founded by him and the reputed grave of Ethne, Colin Keel's mother. The second map um, showing the Garvelas shows you the position of Elac and Eve, um, the most southerly of the, the islands that make up the Garvelas. This poem's called Nahin Ban. Long hours he would sit in his cell, looking at the walls he had built, tapering into the centre, sitting within a blank space, the only light from two slatted holes and the wind howling around him. His calloused hands told him how thick those walls were, but he preferred it here to the company of the other monks. He left the old country and the fishing to get away from the distractions of others, and here on this rocky outpost of the white martyrdom, he would not be changing his ways now. He still fished and farmed in order to live, and he would pray and sing with the rest of them. But most of the time was spent here in solitude, contemplating life and death, or up there on the ridge with the gulls squealing and crying around him, peering over that sheer drop at the big white waves that came crashing in from the west. This is what he had come for, just to be here, alone in a rugged isle, to live under that big open sky, to watch the stars at night and wonder at their wanderings, to be with all of this and of all of this. This is what he'd come for, to the spare isle of the sea. The smallest and flattest of these isles of the sea, Akuli Brannan, is reputed to be Brandon's place of retreat. The present-day parish church of Kilbrannan on Ling and Seal takes its name from a much older church and seal founded by Brandon. If Achille Brennan was his retreat, a hermit cell for meditation and prayer, it may have been because it was separate from, yet close by the monastery on nearby Elac and Eve, for it's a very small island and lacks shelter from the storms and gales coming off the Atlantic. It's very flat, uh, unlike the other two isles. These Celtic monks, like their druid forebears, their eastern counterparts in Taoism, Shinto and Zen and Hyperborean shamanism, lived close to the earth and didn't see themselves as separate from it. Their writings are full of a freshness and vitality which springs from direct contact with the earth. We find this in those records which have survived and in the practices they passed down. And this, I would submit, would be a fruitful subject for further study. The comparison between uh, the writings that have survived in these different cultures. For many centuries, the Atlantic and its coastal waters continued to be the main means of communication, trade, conquest and settlement for later peoples, such as the Vikings, and during the time of the Lordship of the Isles, based on Isla. If the Breton or Armorican coast was and is at the central point of the Atlantic Arc, which stretches from the Algarve in the south to the Shetlands in the north, their Gaile coastline and islands were and are pivotal in the inner arc of interconnection between Ireland and northwest Scotland because of the geographical situation. Later still, boatloads of slate were shipped up from Ling or out from Ling and Easdale to cover the rooftops of the world and hundreds of quarriers and their families were shipped in to live in slate villages like Toberonaki and Cullipool. 
Since the last quarry closed in the mid-1960s, the main work in Ling has been in fishing for scallops, prawns and lobsters, and cattle and sheep farming, along with a variety of service jobs, rather than tourism. Not that long ago, most people in the island spoke Gaelic, and all the topographical features of the island had Gaelic names. Now there are only three Gaelic speakers left out of a population of around 200, and when they go, it will die out, unless there were to be a major effort to teach it in the primary school. And it's certainly to be hoped that the new Colum Keel Centre on Isla will help to reverse the rapid decline of the Gaelic language in Argyll. Adam Nicholson in his book Sea Room about the Shant Islands talking about time there suggests that there are different sheets of time moving at different rates where some things you do like gathering water from the well or walking the shore have hardly changed for centuries. Certainly living by the Atlantic you have a heightened awareness of time from the rhythm of its tides and how they vary in magnitude and regularity. There's also the possibility, if you're prepared to be open to it, of allowing the waves of energy which come from that sea to re-energise the body-mind and of expressing those energies in creative ways. I fancy that this is also something to which Kenneth White was referring in his poem Scotia Deserta when he talked of the birthplace of a wind and wave philosophy. And I'd like to quote you the last part of that poem. Have you heard Corrie Vrecken at the spring flood and a westerly flowing? Sorry, westerly blowing? The roaring's so great you can hear it 20 miles along the mainland coast. Admiralty charts show a nine knot race. To the senses that do no calculations but take it all in, it's a rushing white flurry birthplace of a wind, a wave and wind philosophy. Let the images go bright and fast, and the concepts be extravagant, wild host to erratic guest. That's the only way to say the coast, all the irregular reality of the rocky, sea-washed west, Pelagian discourse, Atlantic poetics, from first to last. Well, I hope I've given you a taste of Atlantic poetics tonight, and maybe the sight, the sound, and a touch of it as well. When you're living on the Isle of Ling, all of these things I've been talking about, the geology of the place, the significance of the sea, the effects of these on people, and its natural energies, with the potential for inspiring a poetics, these things hit you in the face. You can't miss them. But living in the city, we're still on an island, and these factors are still at work. In less obvious ways, maybe, but at work nevertheless. And one of the things we might do in trying to develop geopoetics in Scotland is to consider how, in our own experience, these energies are at work and might be studied and expressed creatively in our own ways. I've only begun to scratch the surface of understanding, experiencing and expressing living on this particular island I haven't said anything about its rich wildlife or fauna, for example, or much about the people today. Those will have to wait for another time. It's very much ongoing work, but I hope it's given you some idea of one approach to developing geopoetics 
and it has encouraged you to think about how you might make a contribution to that development in your own way. Geopoetics is the key to opening all those doors which have been closed by our constricted ways of looking at and being in the world. The doors to our islands are open. Let's walk through them. There is much to be done. Thank you very much.